2: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world, I'm
1: Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond.
2: And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Robert Diamond?
1: I'm feeling like an encyclopedia.
2: Really? In what way though? Why and how?
1: Well, when we invited our guest on, she's Mm. one of the most well-informed people I've ever met in my life. Mm -hmm. And I think she is a kind of encyclopaedia. Like a walking encyclopaedia. Probably won't like me saying that, but I think she is because she's just such a fountain of knowledge. And whenever I've brought up anything cultural, whether it be to do with design, art, uh, fashion, fashion, I don't know everything Craft. She, yes. she has an incredible wealth of knowledge and she is the most inspiring person to talk to and she's actually been someone we've wanted to have on talk art since the beginning yes. and i'm so happy that we are finally getting to chat to her
2: mm-hmm. me too it's amazing it's incredibly exciting so we would like to welcome to talk art alice, alice rawsthorne <laughs> <laughs> how are you, Alice?
0: Hello, Russell, and hello, Rob, you cheeky charmers. You've set me up horribly. I'm going to disappoint everyone now. No we're
2: way. Impossible. Impossible. Can we just start off by saying that you're an OBE?
0: Which oh. you were awarded. You were awarded. Russell
2: loves that. In 2014. As I'm sure you two
0: will be in due course.
2: Oh, That'll I don't you know. Right. But you've you got services to design and the arts in 2014. So how does that feel, and how did that feel, and what has that given you?
0: Um... Well, I was shocked when I got it. I was also very pleased because it reflects sort of two areas of my life. Writing about design and championing it and evangelising for it is my professional life. Mm. But I spend about a third to half of my time doing pro bono work in the arts. Um, I'm chair of trustees of two galleries, currently Chisholm Gallery in the Hepworth Wakefield. And I've been on the boards of the Arts Council, Whitechapel Gallery, chaired Michael Clark Company and so on. So it was very nice to um, be acknowledged both for my work, but also for an enthusiasm that I've turned into a, a different form of voluntary work.
2: What does is, what is being a trustee involve?
0: Well, it's like being a non-executive director of a commercial business in that um, you're in... Basically, you're supposed to protect the mission and vision of the organisation, which, given that um, art galleries like the Chiz and the Hepworths are registered charities, they're uh, recipients of public funding, that's obviously an important responsibility to make sure that they are pursuing their mission and vision and that the money's well spent. Um, mm-hmm. It is, I have to say, I love it. I've done it for about 30 years. I think I joined the Whitechapel Gallery Board um, in my late 20s, and I've been very involved with different forms of governance ever since, but always with organisations I'm absolutely passionate about. Otherwise, there would be no point in doing it and the best definition I ever heard of being a good trustee or a good chair is that you should be a constructively critical friend and I think all three words constructive because that's the only sensible way to be critical and friend are essential in that
2: Mm. and how do you find all the time to because it 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 must take up a lot of time especially if you're chairing a trustee right you you're like the head honcho of that trustee
0: (laughs) It does take up a lot of time, but um, I'm lucky in that I, as a writer, I have control of my own schedule. And one of the reasons I enjoy doing it is that it draws on completely different skills to my professional life so I love writing I mean design is my passion I really believe that you know it's one of the most useful tools at our disposal to build a better world so it's essential Mm -hmm. that people recognize that to make the most of design Um, But in my governance work, I'm really drawing on different skills. It's much more about sort of mentorship, team building, thinking strategically, thinking in the long term. Um, Fundraising Mm. is incredibly important and helping the staff with that. So I think it gives me a much more rounded life in terms of the kind of things I do. So I'm always happy to make the time for it.
1: And another thing that you've spent a lot of time doing is writing books and um, I mean there's so many different elements of your life that we can discuss but when did, was writing a book something that you always wanted to do or was it something that just ended up sort of coming out of the passions that you had?
0: Um, well, both, really. I mean, I'm a, even as a kid, I was a massive reader. You know, I was one of those mm. little girls who was always buried in a book. <laughs> and, um, and it continues to be one of my huge passions. Um, mm. And I think I also had, as most would-be writers have, this sort of completely ridiculous romantic notion of how wonderful it would be to write and publish a book. Now, publishing a book, providing it's successful, is great fun. Writing mm. it, as almost anyone, who has ever embarked upon that will tell you it's an absolute nightmare you just spend years (laughs) wrestling with your intellectual limitations and beating yourself up you know inventing Mm -hmm. coruscatingly negative reviews of what you're writing because you know all its weaknesses and so on Um, so it was something I'd always wanted to do but perhaps not for the right reasons but I think if you're really passionate about subject or an issue as i am particularly one that's Mm. generally misunderstood because writing a book um opens up so many other opportunities to discuss those issues i think it is the single biggest sort of cultural catalyst you can throw in the mix so Mm. um and each one i have to say has got progressively easier
2: so you write you write predominantly about design
0: Yes. So, um, and I have quite an unusual background for a design writer because I started off as a proper journalist. I worked for the Financial Times for 20 years. So I wrote about corporate affairs, politics, economics. I was a foreign correspondent in Paris for three years. um, And I um, really started the FT's coverage of the creative industries. Um, Mm. So that was a brilliant um, career in conventional journalism. But I decided after about 18 years that I really did want to focus on a subject I was really passionate about. And I chose mm-hmm. design, which I felt was very undervalued, underwritten about and underappreciated. And, and so you said earlier
2: mis- f- on it's misunderstood. Why, do you, why would you say design was misunderstood?
0: Well, because when most people think of design, they think of, you know, blingy trainers, um, overpriced hotels, snazzy smartphones, and so on. Right, and, right. of course, design has produced all of that stuff, but there's much, much more to it than that. And it's routinely stereotyped as a sort of PR tool or a styling mechanism, but increasingly it's addressing more and more sort of much more fundamental areas of our lives um, by pursuing designers' social, political, cultural ecological objectives Mm -hmm. and so what I'm really interested in is design in that guise as something that can help us to address the climate emergency, the refugee crisis, a pandemic like COVID-19. Yes so
2: so you were writing this before because your book uh, Design as an Attitude which is how design is responding to all of the above what you just said, intense economic, political, ecological instabilities climate change and you wrote this book before this pandemic right but I suppose it was covering pandemics that had hit other countries
0: actually Russell I now feel guilty because I'm not sure the p-word appears in that book but you're right it does address um it's basically about the new generation of digitally empowered designers who are operating independently so they've broken away from the sort of industrial-age stereotype of design as a commercial tool executed under instruction from someone else to address their core social, political, environmental concerns. And people from other sectors, whether they're doctors, coders, social scientists, anthropologists, are also increasingly experimenting with design with very interesting results. So COVID-19 is, you know, tragic as it is, It has produced incredible design innovation and design ingenuity already by those sorts of collaborations.
2: Like, what have you seen? What have you discovered?
0: Well, um, it's everything from um, producing sorely needed equipment like ventilators, mm-hmm. um, which, mm-hmm. you know, manufacturers from all sorts of different in- industrial sectors, whether it's, you know, Formula One companies, Rolls-Royce, um, aerospace engineering and so on, are Um, working on but also there's a lot of work on that on independent designers particularly on sort of cost engineering down the price of respirators and ensuring that they can be produced locally um, especially in developing economies where medical equipment is even scarcer than it is here. Mm. Um, I mean there are Endless other examples of this. I mean, I do a design Instagram every day, which I've done for um five and a half years, and I've I devoted last week to design in a pandemic to examine what designers were doing to wrestle with mm-hmm. COVID-19, and mm-hmm. I've extended it into this week so there were just so many incredible innovations to talk about my favorite was an italian doctor the head of an intensive care unit in bologna who had realized that if you put you can actually attach two patients to the same ventilator at once so it doubles your capacity which you know it's a brilliantly simple example of necessity being that was never known
2: before this pandemic They'd never well, no, that because this.
0: nobody had needed um, that is ventilators in, in such huge quantities, and he collaborated with an Italian, a local manufacturer. They prototyped it in three days, and then it went live in the hospital for successful testing. But there were endless examples of that. Um, Today, for example, I wrote about in the US, um, there's a a massive shortage to an even greater degree than here of PPE, personal protective equipment, um, ventilators and other kits that frontline health workers need. Um, But a lot of it is actually sitting in veterinary services, construction uh, sites, dentists, and, and so on. And so a number of online platforms have been developed by doctors, designers, coders and engineers, to basically identify the needs of hospitals and clinics and match those against the supply of local suppliers or sources of the equipment mm. they need. And so, you know, it's it's a very obvious, super practical, highly functional way of addressing what threatened to become a really serious problem. And actually...
1: Mm. I saw um, an
2: amazing thing that the Whitney... Hotel, uh, whitney gallery did is that all of their art handlers have gloves and masks and little shoes and everything that they wear to protect all the art and what the museums have done now because there's been shutdowns is they've just given all of their equipment straight to the hospital straight to like the first aiders straight to the ambulances so that they can use it all which is an incredible and this isn't like newly created stuff but i just think it's an amazing initiative that uh, as part of a community that that's happened
0: Absolutely. And it can make a huge difference. So basically, these they call themselves sort of online clearinghouses, these digital platforms are doing that on a much larger
1: scale. Something that I've really loved about you is is exactly what you're saying, because the way that you've kind of adopted Instagram instead of, uh, I feel like you highlight and champion different things that are happening around the world. um, So that people can kind of understand what design is in a different way and um, one of the things I've loved in the UK is actually the design museum because every year you have the exhibition designs of the year which I think is now called Beasley designs of the year and I've been the last few years and I've always found it so exciting to see how people are experimenting and pushing things forward to do with the uh climate change but also sustainability and all these different kind of um important uh social concerns and you were actually after the ft you actually were the director of the design museum and that was when i first think i met you maybe at the end i think like maybe late 2006 um can you talk about that that kind of part of your life and how important it was and and how difficult it was maybe the challenge it brought
0: Well, it was a huge learning experience because it was the first time I'd actually managed something. And also it gave me an opportunity to learn about design in a very different way. So a lot of the lessons I learned there, I've subsequently applied in my arts governance work and also uh I also work with amazing people there was a fantastic team there so you know many of those people are friends and we've been colleagues and collaborators on different projects ever since so that's been great Um, but it also uh enabled me to take on my next job which um I did for 12 years, and that was being design critic of initially the International (laughs) Herald Tribune and then the the New York Times. So I wrote a weekly (laughs) column for the New York Times um, during that period. And that was fantastic because it was the first time they'd had a design critic. And so I could really make it up. As I went (laughs) along and write my own job description, which is one of the things that really appeals to me about design. Because I think I am still a traditional journalist at heart. So I love making discoveries and then, you know, writing about them, communicating them to other people. And um, design history is full of so many sort of, you know, forgotten heroes and heroines or um, mavericks and radicals who are really sort of unsung figures at the time. And it's always fascinating to find out about them now. Often they make much more sense in a contemporary context than they did, say, in the 1950s or the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And um, so writing for The New York Times was really a fantastic opportunity for me to write about design on a global platform through the website and to develop a a critical language about it
2: wow how did you get into design like you grew up in manchester right
0: (laughs) i hope you're not implying that there's a.
2: no i know i'm just saying what did you what experiences did you have growing up in manchester Uh, in, in like the 60s and 70s um
0: well uh at, it was fantastic because manchester first of all it has an incredible design heritage you know it's a city whose wealth was built um during the industrial era really on scientific mm-hmm. innovation you walk into manchester town hall and there are, there's a great scientist on one side in a hunking statue and there's a hunking statue of another on the mm-hmm. other and um, also my parents were both very involved in design, although neither them would have necessarily described themselves as such. Uh, my mum was a primary school teacher, but she specialised in art. Um, so I was incredibly lucky. She was a lovely mum. She was a brilliant teacher and also I was a always a really academic kid and um, most academic kids in Britain are never really exposed to visual culture And Mm -hmm. mum would just sort of give us impromptu art appreciation lessons everywhere we were. So, you know, if we were walking the dog, she'd pick up a leaf and say... What colours is this? And so my brother and I would go, yawn, it's green. And she'd say, No, look more closely. And then you'd see all the colours that oh were there. My. And whilst I can Oh my God, all, your mum's amazing. She, she was fantastic. I owe her so oh. much. And oh. um, so, it, although tragically I did not uh, inherit her artistic abilities, though my brother did, luckily for him. Um, she was left your brother an artist? Well, he was a musician, and then he did sort of carpentry, he made film sets and so on. So very handy. It left me feeling sort of instinctively very confident about my visual judgments and keen to investigate my visual curiosity, which I'm Mm -hmm. endlessly thankful to her for. I mean, an artist friend, David Batchelor, often says the British are never taught how to look, and I think that's so true in a typical British education and um, so sad because you can miss out on so much um, but my dad was a mechanical engineer and he ended up running engineering firms but he too was incredibly um, handy you know he could do the plumbing the electric wiring um, carpentry you know my, like, my dad was a toolmaker walls. at Ford so I grew up in this yeah. environment where Everybody in the family, bar me, was super dexterous, but in a very sort of pragmatic, natural way. Neither mum nor dad would have described themselves as a designer, but they both were. You know, dad with these incredibly sophisticated DIY projects and mum with her gardening, sewing, knitting, craft making to sell at charity markets and so on.
1: And you went on to actually study art history, which is so perfect for talk art. <laughs> um. <laughs> it is, but I um,
0: I actually began, I went to a succession of crappy comprehensives and um, yeah. and then I, I went to Cambridge University and I applied yeah. to study law because really? this was the late 70s and clever girls were told to, um, if they were good at science, to become doctors or if they were good mm-hmm. at Uh, the arts to become lawyers and really bad advice because both professions were so misogynistic at the time so all my friends who pursued them although they were all very successful eventually they had a really really tough time because of all the sexism and so I did two years of law at Cambridge I wanted to be a a human rights lawyer but um, obviously my ideals weren't strong enough because the course I did find, it didn't give me the sort of intellectual and cultural stimulus I really longed for at university. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a two-part degree. So I switched to art and architectural history for the second part, um, which was, I'm sure the course is better now, but in those days it was so fuddy-duddy. It was unbelievable. Um, So that was quite boring, but the library was incredible. I mean, they had art, architecture and design books from all over the world. Subscriptions to all the then amazing Italian design journals um, wow. like Domus and Avatare. so I just sort of devoured them, and that was how I discovered design
2: wow wow, so who for you are your are the unsung design heroes, and who for you are like the ones that have really changed your perspective on everything
0: well there are there are so many um And many design heroines as well, but uh, in the spirit of gender equality, heroes too. Um, So, one would be uh, a designer I only discovered relatively. Recently, because I was reading up on Rudolf Schindler and saw a photograph of a chair she designed in the book and thought I have never heard of Louise Brigham and she was uh, a sort of anti-poverty activist. She came from a very wealthy Boston family um, so at the in the late nineteenth and early 20th century, she um, studied art in New York at Parson or what's now. Parsons and the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, and Mm. then devoted herself to poverty relief work and what was called the Settlement House Movement. And this was, um, the settlement houses were sort of large shelters that were put up to provide temporary accommodation for indigent families, migrant workers who didn't have anywhere to live, and so on. So she devoted many years to that. And then went on a research tour, a craft research tour of Europe, where she also became interested in industrial design. She spent a lot of time in Vienna with Josef Hoffmann and the other successionist designers. Mm. And she sort of combined the two by inventing this form of DIY furniture called box furniture. And she designed wow. templates for well over 100 objects, basically everything you would need to furnish a working class family home all made from different wooden boxes, because in those days, most food and produce was delivered in wooden crates. Crates, yes. You know, so... If it was a crate for bottles, the wood would have to be really thick, or they'd smash through it. You know, if it was for grapes, say, um, it would be lighter. And she published a book on box furniture with very specific, practical instructions as to how
1: wow. to.
0: Wow, so she
2: was the it. original recycler, basically. The original like.
0: recycler, and far more famous um, designers um, have subsequently developed her ideas, I suspect, without ever having hearing of her because she's largely absent from any design histories. But she also ran... So she kitted out her entire apartment on the Upper East Side With box furniture. And it does look very sophisticated from the few photographs there are of it. But more importantly, ran skills workshops for New Yorkers, first boys and then girls as well, from needy families. Um, So they could learn the skills they'd need to make box furniture. It makes me think of Donald Judd. Donald Judd when he
2: used to make the crate kind of furniture, didn't he? The very simple lined, looks like boxes.
0: Ex- exactly. So very um, similar. So Enzo Mari, the great um, Italian designer, mm. was the founders of the radical design movement in the mm. 60s and 70s. I mean, he did a project called Auto where where basically he sort of sent a, a template for furniture you could make yourself. So there've been lots of examples of this, but she is the first person who did it in a systematic way that mm. I've come across. Of course, people had, on the necessity as the mother of invention principle, been knocking up furniture from anything that was around forever, out mm. of necessity. You know, they had no money to buy it.
2: But she she completely like made it for that a demographic of low income families and to support them. That was and probably an amazing gift to given that to them.
0: Yes. And, and also, obviously, a lot of the kids who went to the workshops did have the kind of skills they used to get, you know, wow. skilled, reasonably highly paid jobs. Um, oh, nice. Tragically, for a feminist like myself, um, she actually gave it all up when she got married to a very wealthy oh, wow. industrialist and mm. extraordinarily sort of transformed and reinvented herself from this pioneering... Um, sort of social campaigner to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the wife of a wealthy industrialist.
2: Gosh. Well. So you, you you were talking about her time in Vienna and you mentioned successionist designers. Can you just tap a bit more on that? Because just to clear up what that is and tell us a well, bit that,
0: more. Well, that would be, I mean, Vienna um, was really at the sort of centre of, of cultural innovation, not just in design and architecture, but in art in the early 20th century Um, and particularly during the 1920s when there was a an ultra left-wing city council Um, it was then called Red Vienna so there were huge housing projects to house impecunious workers and their families and so on and at the centre of it was one of the people who influenced Louise Brigham most and this was Josef Um, Mm Hoffman and he was part of you've probably been to the amazing um, Succession Gallery Yeah, Vienna. Yeah, yeah. So he was mm. one of the founders of that. It was founded by a group of artists, designers, and architects. But he also founded what were called the Vienna Werkstätte, the Vienna Workshops, mm. and. So these were groups of artisanal workshops um, who would make everything from, you know, furniture that people buy from their homes. Um, It's a fabulous chocolate shop, Altman and Kuhner, that they kitted Mm -hmm. out in Vienna with an amazing gentleman tailor's opposite um, that was also largely fabricated in the, the workshop. So Louise Brigham was very impressed by all of this. And Hoffman's Less known as an architect and also a furniture designer for his very geometric monochrome buildings and,
1: and objects like the Puckersdorf sanatorium for example. Sarah Lucas did an amazing show um, in the succession not long ago and um, there's been so many great contemporary art exhibitions there it's really worth the listeners to check it out. Mm. Yeah it's a fantastic gallery. Mm.
2: So you were talking about being a being a trustee earlier on about of lots of well of the Hepworth Wakefield what is the conversations uh currently going forwards now as you're one of these trustees How, how are people dealing at this time of anxiety and great change
0: Well, unfortunately, across the arts, um, it is a period of extreme anxiety and and great change. So I don't think anyone would have believed at the beginning of the year that there would have been mass closures across the country. And of course, the economic implications of that for any publicly funded arts charity are absolutely appalling. And the precise implications depend on, you know, which area of the arts um, the organisation's in and also how financially robust it was um, going into the COVID-19 pandemic and the the closures. Um, And then so, you know, over the last couple of weeks, as soon as we realised that... um, Closure And at the time, we thought it would be possibly just partial closure, not necessarily mm. complete closure, was a possibility at Chisholm Hill and the Hepworth Wakefield. We immediately mm-hmm. began contingency planning for it. And that proved very helpful because the process of institutions realising that they did have to close was really very quick. It happened within a couple of days. So yeah. by then, we'd been talking about it trying to anticipate the problems and pitfalls um, for quite a long time so we were in that mindset and we had talked through a lot of the the difficulties but obviously for the people who work in those organizations it's a very worrying time you know Nobody works in the arts to make lots of money. They do it because they love it and they're absolutely devoted to their job. So if you're a curator and you've been planning an exhibition with an artist whose work you really believe in or a period of art history that you're passionate about and want to enthuse other people about, it's obviously absolutely heartbreaking to have had to abandon those projects as it is for you, Russell, to have to abandon a play and so during um the crisis complicated hugely um by the fact that we don't know when we'll be able to reopen we're obviously planning ahead and
2: how far ahead are you planning though what where are you projecting
0: you're all ready for an art gallery and and Chisholm and the Hepworth-Wakefield are very different in that Chisholm is much smaller. It's focused exclusively on emerging and experimental art. So, But we would typically plan the programme two years ahead. This year is slightly exceptional because our former director, Polly Staple, left at the end of last year uh, for a new job at Tate. Mm. And we'd hugely enthusiastically appointed Zoe Wickley as our new director. Mm-hmm. And indeed, this is her first day. So, you know, Zoe's first staff meeting was on Zoom. Um, what, today? So- today? <laughs>
1: yes.
0: Wow. So, I mean, she's been absolutely brilliant and yeah. has, you know, jumped to the at cha- uh, the challenge and risen wow. to it fantastically. But, you know, that is... Uh, uh, a huge task for her to have to to take on, to get to know her new team, to forge relationships with them and the trustees digitally. I mean, I have every confidence that um, she will do it with great, grace, thoughtfulness and, and aplomb, so all be well in the the end. But obviously that's a, a huge complication. Um, yeah. We also have very practical issues like um, the next exhibition we were going to programme was a Shanghai-based artist, Yuji, and we are incredibly excited about the exhibition, but we realised quite early on that she wasn't going to be able to leave China to come and install the show, and... Mm. Her installing the exhibition is an intrinsic part of it. So, nothing else um, other than her being there to plan and execute the installation would have really produced the the type of exhibition that we all wanted. Particularly wow. her. So, what so, do you? I
2: mean, what do you do now?
0: Well, we will reschedule that for um, hopefully for early next year. But obviously, that right, will right. depend on UG's schedule. Um, yeah. And we have a bit more flexibility with the next exhibition um, that was planned because that's currently at um, Veals in, in Brussels. Mm-hmm. Right. So we'll simply need shipping over uh, here to Britain. Then obviously we don't know when Chisholm Hale's going to reopen. But we're not dependent on box office income. You know, we don't sell tickets at Chisholm there isn't a shop, there isn't a cafe. And so financially, even though we're this tiny experimental organisation, we're actually quite well-placed to withstand the crisis or, or the right. close down. Right. The with Wakefield is more complex because it's much, much bigger. Um, we have a collection as well as temporary exhibitions. On the exhibition front, um, the team have already revised the exhibition schedule um, through till the end of next year year so the end of 2021 but yeah. that was actually much easier to do than it will be for Chisenhale for all sorts of sort of random reasons and so is there not a way
2: co- though to like is there not a way though to the show like the show that's currently on that the Chisenhale that like ended early is there not a way to just treat this period whatever it is as a pause and then pick up after that and then everything just gets moved on
0: well, it would be if the exhibition was only showing at Chisholm Hale. But um, the exhibition that was showing, it actually closed on the Sunday before the lockdown, was okay. um, Imran Peretta's The Destructors, yes. which was an incredible film we commissioned with Spike Island in Bristol, the Whitworth in Manchester. Now, that was due to open after Chisholm Hill at the Baltic in right. newcastle yeah. um, and then go to the whitworth so when you have touring partners like that which you know most galleries have to do to make the funding of exhibitions make sense you obviously can't let them down and so there have been very complex discussions with all the touring partners both at chisholm and, and the hepworth but also every other gallery um in the country to work out those sort of very complex schedules Schedules, but luckily everybody's friendly collegial collaborative and constructive about it and Mm. and we all help one another out so i've also
1: i've also been incredibly impressed by how um the creative industries have so many creative thinkers and kind of creative solving you know coming up with solutions to very un you know difficult and hard to mm-hmm. define problems in a way. Like even yeah. today, I had a Zoom meeting and the ideas people are coming up with are just so brilliant. Like, <laughs> um, so it's It's quite, it's interesting to be in a creative uh, industry, I think at this, at this moment, you know, rising to the challenge of how to solve issues. It, it's really interesting.
0: It is, but I think also we're incredibly lucky that um, everybody has now had many years of experimenting with digital programming. Yes. And that is essential at this time. You know, whether it's um, disseminating sort of, you know, templates or instructions for creative activities so parents can entertain their kids during lockdown, Hans Ulrich Obrist, Reviving Do It, you know, his mm. sort of improvisational exhibition where great yep. artists issue instructions and everyone does it. I mean, I remember seeing it at Manchester Art Gallery a couple of years ago, and it was just fantastic. People mm. would jump this Great around, Yoko didn't.
2: Ono does it really well, <laughs> Ex- exactly. And, yeah. um, John
0: Baldessari, yeah. I think, is a, a tribute to him. He um, opened with so you know, Hans is now pumping that out on Instagram, but also <laughs> yeah. you've got you know, amazing content out there, um, that people can really enjoy. So whether it's talks with artists, interviews with artists, live performances on Instagram Live, whatever, Um, I think the sector really has risen to the challenge of very quickly establishing Mm. itself as this sort of amazing source of information, entertainment, cultural stimulus. So, you know, Rob, as you rightly say, it's wonderful working with people who are so imaginative and resourceful.
1: Now, you've also been on the jury for the Turner Prize um, and also many other prizes, such as the Sterling Prize for Architecture and Book Prizes and all kinds of things. But I really wanted to specifically talk about the Turner Prize. Um, What was it like when when the year that you, you did that?
0: It was really fun. I mean, I've been very lucky because I think I've been the. There's always a slot for the amateur uh, amateur enthusiast on (laughs) all the main cultural juries, and I think (laughs) I've done a clean sweep. (laughs) Um, And of course, it's such fun because you learn so much. Um, And so I was on the Turner Prize jury in. 1999 and it was a very dramatic uh jury because it was the year that Steve McQueen won you know amazing result one of unquestionably one of the great artists of our time um and but uh, and the the other nominees were fantastic too so there were the Wilson twins Jane and Louise Louise, um Stephen Pippin who's a brilliant artist who kind of disappeared afterwards I hope unrelated to his nomination he'd already left London to um, go and live in in the US I think in, in the Midwest um, mm. so I think was sort of changing his way of life but he was such an extraordinary artist I hope he'll be rediscovered or if he doesn't mm. want to be rediscovered at least his early work will yeah. be reconsidered at some point and Tracy Emin and Tracy then was doing incredibly interesting work. She'd done a big show at the South London Gallery. So she yes. was really looking at sort of teenage gender political issues, mm. um, but hadn't really been given a sort of national platform. And of course, it's as so soon true. as the tabloids it's, it's got a whiff that of now. the bed... Mm. Um, they went berserk and there were, you know, Chinese, I don't know why Chinese jumping students on protested the bed weren't against they? it. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, yes. uh, you know, two tape security guards were injured. I mean, it went on and on and on. And so literally every day there was an explosion in the media um, about the Turner Prize. And, you know, we were just waiting for who are the idiots who foisted this nonsense upon us. Um, yeah. but it did generate a very feisty debate. It was a brilliant exhibition. Yeah, Definitely, Definitely. Um, and we had great nominees and a great winner.
2: Everyone thinks that Tracy actually won that award that year, don't they? Everyone just, everyone just assumes that because of the media coverage, because of what a a big uh, speculation it became, they just assume that she won the award that year.
0: It uh, it's absolutely true. In fact, um, Tessa Jowell, um, the lovely Labour MP who was um, Secretary of State for Culture, said in a speech. Um, that Tracy had won the Turner Prize that yeah. Year. Obviously it was brilliant for Tracy's career. So it was the sort of mm. rocket that she needed at that particular point. So, you know, she's gone on to become a very, very successful artist.
2: You were saying earlier on about your, your mum uh used to make craft uh objects and then sell them at markets.
0: Yeah, she was one of those people who um ran all the local charities, Um, she taught in a school for deaf children uh, as a volunteer, and she would, um, she was never not active or not making something. So, you know, whether she was sort of knitting dolls to sell Mm -hmm. at craft markets or weaving things or crocheting or tatting or whatever, Mm -hmm. she was always making things to sell for her various good causes but um eventually i think when she was 50 she became a jp um which was fantastic for her because it gave her a whole new sort of area of interest and and local activity
2: do you think there's a revival in craft at the moment
0: hugely um and And why do you think that is well I, i think it's a a direct response to our spending so much of our time absorbing information and entertainment on screen. And if you look at, and, and actually, there's a very interesting contrast to what may happen after, or what is currently happening in the lockdown, and that we're being Force to sort of shun live activity and group mm-hmm. gatherings and that's something that one of the unforeseen consequences of the digital age is that that's something we've really craved and so any form of sort of spontaneous live improvisational activity has become very popular whether it's mm-hmm. um, performance art protest marches litathons potathons. Um, whatever, uh, literary festivals, talks, lectures and debates. You know, these were things that we sort of associated with the late 19th and early 20th century, the pre-television age until recently. And they've blossomed, not just in the UK, but um, in every other country too. And I think it's because we craved that human interaction. It's very natural to want a contrast. Now, suddenly, of course we can only engage with that through digital means. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens when we emerge from this, whether actually we'll all long for um, human interaction and spontaneity and sort of naturalism again, or whether we'll be slightly scared of it and intimidated by it because we'll associate it with infection. But I mean, so for all those reasons, craft is one of the many cultural disciplines that really benefited. But of course, it's a wonderful thing to do. It fits in with an ecologically sustainable agenda Um we have an incredible craft history in this country, a sort of modernist one as well as a yes. traditional one, and have great makers. I mean, we did a wonderful exhibition at the Hepworth last year of the work of um, the Kenyan-born ceramicist Magdalena Dundo, who really is one yes. of the greatest um, mm, ceramicists yeah, yeah. living and working in Britain. And um, her work is They're quite very monochrome, much about... aren't they? Quite
2: shiny at times and monochrome. And... Yes,
0: and. Uh, very extreme in their shape, the colours, the the intensity of the firing, the sort of patina of the surface. And she uses them to investigate her own cultural identity, having been born in Kenya and brought up there and in India, and then coming to Britain in her early 20s, and then really discovering the African heritage of, of ceramics from ethnographic museums here in Britain and then going to Africa mm. to sort of study it um, properly. I mean, she's an absolutely amazing maker and it's been wonderful to see, I mean, she's now a dame, um, it's been wonderful to see how awareness of her work has soared because of that
1: exhibition. Yeah, definitely. I, I love the Hepworth Wakefield as well because I feel like actually um, they've supported a lot of women artists as well. And I remember seeing Janet Leach's... Um, ceramics there and also Rebecca Warren's got a permanent bronze at the moment hasn't she that's just been installed outside um,
0: well Rebecca's got two sculptures one in um, the garden which was designed yeah, the by garden. Tom yeah. Stewart Smith which is I love his, his garden designs
1: they're amazing
0: absolutely gorgeous and um, in fact she was so thrilled with that that um, she offered us a long-term loan of a, a sculpture which is inside the gallery and David Chipperfield so cool. designed the building Brilliantly. I mean, it is one of the best uh, modern buildings in Britain. And he was very clever at sort of positioning all the windows, the doors, and all the other openings. So you always had an extraordinary or intriguing view. And yeah. so Rebecca's um sculpture inside the gallery is against a beautiful view of a huge weeping willow tree, which is in the river on the weir, immediately oh, outside wow. the, the gallery. And it's wonderful to see her work there. It just looks fantastic. Oh my god, I've never the been J. there. Oh, I need Anderson to go there. That's been on well. my
2: list. Yeah.
1: The JWN was so great. I loved it. Yeah, you have to, Russ.
2: Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Well, I'm hoping so, after we, we, everyone comes out of this, talking about craft and talking about that, is that people are going to start up small businesses. There's going to be lots of people kind of discovering that they can create a patchwork well. quilt in 24 hours. Yeah, <laughs> or, they, or there's more, going to be more bakers or there's going to be more like <laughs> furniture makers. There's going to be so much where people have to kind of go back to start making stuff with their hands and being creative because well, after a while... I've never baked in, in my life of...
1: and this, this lockdown's made me bake. I still can't go. Over yeah. It's just insane. Yeah. But I'm loving It'll it. come, Rob. It'll come, it's really... (laughs) I'm the worst maker (laughs) in the history of time, but... You're
0: absolutely (laughs) right, Russell, but I think the tragedy is that, you know, it would be wonderful to think that everyone can use the lockdown to entirely indulgently to, you know, develop new skills and new areas of creativity, but of course the vast majority of people just can't. You know, they're struggling to make a living, they've got huge professional Mm. responsibilities, they can't really um, handle at home, they've got kids to look after you know, elderly parents to care for or, or whatever, mm. but also there have been so many wonderful designers, makers, artisans who have started those businesses here recently and many of them sadly will have to close because of the yeah. um, lockdown. I'm sure you're right in that lots of other people will come out of this process and will want to change their lives quite radically but i wonder if some people will want to become sort of freer um, maybe reckless is the wrong word but certainly more bolder and more audacious in their choices they might be more inclined to sort of set up on their own and really follow a passion but i wonder if some people might be so traumatized by the experience, that um, they may end up leading more conventional lives, you know, wanting the security of a salary and so on. So it may well go both ways. And, of course, the greatest tragedy is that a lot of people are going to lose people they love,
1: which is just unbearable. Mm. It's so sad. It is such a challenging, challenging time, isn't it? Um, It's just, yeah, it's kind of very difficult to get your head around it as well because... You know, like we've been working out today how to raise money for different charities and help. And then at the same time, you can, at night time, you know, if I'm going to bed, I just feel completely helpless. It's like a, a kind of, you know, but I think you just have to try and stay positive and try and do what you can to help everybody in the food banks and different charities. Like no, of course. Charities and, and also domestic abuse. I mean, I just can't get out of my head this idea that if you're stuck in a home, you know, with an abusive partner, and often, if you are in that situation, you might not, even have been able to free yourself from it but i was um slightly comforted yesterday when i saw that the news um the government had put out a statement about you are able to go to a refuge and find help you know even if there is this lockdown and not to feel like you can't go outside if you are in a situation that's unsafe or um so i'm kind of yeah. relieved that at least that even if it, it I, I don't know i just think having that there's an option in the mainstream media suddenly there's an option it's quite an important yeah. thing to remind people yeah It is, but the fact that that
0: formal announcement was made, I think, speaks of how much abuse um, is happening and how tragic it is for people who are trapped in that situation. I mean, I found one thing that um, has helped me through the process is, for one, I've been incredibly busy from the contingency planning onwards and then my own work, and as a writer... I do work from home and so that has continued sort of unaffected Um, but also I volunteered so first of all I volunteered for a community support group um, Mm -hmm. where you volunteer to do just offer very simple practical help um for people who live near you, whether they need shopping, prescriptions, collecting, dog walking, I'll always walk your dogs, Russell. That's a firm offer. <laughs> um, so anything simple like that that can make a big difference to people yeah. in this situation. And that was something that one of my neighbors um Set up and and when I emailed her to say that you know I was happy to volunteer for it, uh, I then ran into her. This was before safe distancing, and she said, you know, lots of other people had volunteered too, which she was really happy about. But various others had contacted her saying, "Thank God you're doing this. I've been worried sick. I just don't know how I'm going to cope." But I've also volunteered for the NHS. yeah. As obviously have three quarters of a million other people and look forward mm-hmm. if my um, plans come to fruition to driving for the NHS, which, you know, obviously mm. it's a tiny, tiny, tiny minuscule contribution to all the incredible work they're doing. But um, I, I think it's just it does make a huge difference to people's really mindset does, if they feel they and can have yeah.
1: I think I think you really can help in the tiniest of ways as well and those small like um you know actions that you can take or even tiny donations to a food bank for example like I've I've walked up to my local church here and just given you know as many tins as I could find in my house you know um things like that I just think it it does kind of help and also I've been thinking a lot about older age uh people and charities like opening doors in London who who are specifically um looking out for kind of LGBT Plus um, over fifties in the UK, but even the idea of just like phoning someone who's maybe eighty and on their own and feeling very scared, mm. just having that like phone Telefriending really service help. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, just all those kind of things that you can do from being indoors.
0: No, exactly. And actually, that's one of the services um, that you can do if you volunteer for the NHS to sort of right. chat and to an and email. People. But I mean, the other thing that really worries me is every Christmas I volunteer for crisis at Christmas. And if I mm. think of the people we see at the day centres year mm. after year coming in and how precarious their lives are, it's terrifying to think what's going to happen to them in yeah. this crisis. You know, and I mean, I saw the ref- there's a photograph in the New York Times today of a car park in Las Vegas and um, their homeless people in Las Vegas had been rounded up and were literally safe distance sleeping in the car park. They each had Mm, the space that's normally allocated for a car. I mean, the idea of that happening in, you know, obviously China is going to be the dominant global economic superpower from now onwards, but, you know, the number two richest country in the world is just horrific.
1: Yeah, it is horrific
2: yeah god right well on well, a lighter note we ask every guest that comes on two very <laughs> important questions but we also have a brucey bonus today because we're in lockdown but we are come to that but the first question Ooh. we ask every guest who comes and talk art is if you could do an art heist if you could steal or have any piece of work your touchstone artwork from anywhere in the world anything in the world what would it be and why
0: Well, actually, I've already answered this question because it would be the apartment that Louise Brigham designed and made for herself um, in the 1910s. It was 539 East 89th Street in New York, Mm -hmm. and it was completely kitted out with box furniture as a showpiece to show its potential. And there was a New York Times interview with her at the time, which is in the archive. You can access it online. And so you have the reporter's description of the box furniture and also images. So it's slightly cheating because it's not an artwork, but I'm really crap at sort of just choosing one favourite. Mm. And I felt that would be it. <laughs> also, it would have to be a magical heist because it was destroyed many, many, many years ago.
2: Well, we Who destroyed it? Why was clocks? it not kept? Why was it not archived? Well,
0: I think because her work wasn't appreciated at the time. And she was right. super pragmatic. I mean, the New York Times described her as a practical philanthropist, which I think is a brilliant way of describing anyone um but no cultural value would have been given to her work at the time when actually it's a wonderful it would be a wonderful glimpse into
1: you know that part of new york's cultural history how wonderful yeah um so the other question we ask every guest is very simple it's what is your favorite color
0: Well, it would have to be red because I'm a Manchester United fan, born and bred. (laughs) (laughs) Red devil. (laughs) And I do love red. You know, every other colour, there's a sort of dodgy shade that um, is a bit icky. Um, There's a sort of nasty, sort of slightly blurry industrial red that I don't like very much. But generally, I love a bit of red. And I'm a red. You wear
2: a lot of red, don't you?
0: I do wear a lot of red, yes. It is one of my favourite colours in all manifestations.
2: Amazing. And the other question we're asking everyone is, what is your hidden lockdown talent? A talent you didn't realise you had, but since you've been in lockdown, you've discovered you do.
0: Oh, well, I'm not sure I've developed it yet, tragically, and may indeed end lockdown, not having discovered a talent. What I'm hoping it will be is skipping. because uh, But actually, this would be more rediscovering a lost talent, because I loved skipping when I was a kid. Um, The skipping race was the only race I stood a chance of winning at school. Um, on sports day and um, my garden is just big enough for me to skip in so if we're really totally locked down and we can't go out of our homes I have ordered some super high-tech skipping ropes and I'm looking forward to skipping.
1: Wicked. Um, I spoke to Zoe yesterday and Zoe said um, I should get a trampoline like a small trampoline because she said that um it's meant to be the most amazing thing for fitness and i've never thought about that before but you just jump up and down on the trampoline i was like really? I think you'd love it i she think said, you would love she it said Rob. she's never had abs like it i was like wow so she's <laughs> gonna send me a link so thanks zoe for that as well but actually it's so does, a really it good does it does make sense though yeah
0: you know if you think you're balancing all the time and that's an underlying principle of aerobics
1: and the yeah, cardiovascular yeah. exercise it must be fantastic and her daughter's got one of those bars that you put in the doors, um, in the door frame a that you can lift bar, up your yeah. own body weight. And I just, mm-hmm. she showed me that and sent me a picture, and I just wrote back saying, "Zoe, that's just not going to happen. Like the idea of me <laughs> lifting my own body weight, like <laughs> it's not going to happen." But um, the, the other idea, is skipping, oh, is a trampling. really good idea. I love that. Um, yeah, that's funny. And also, I guess we can all dance at home. I always remember you were one of the first people that ever told me about Michael Clark because weren't you on the? The board yeah, of I was the um, chair, chair of trustees the of, trustees, of Michael trustees. Clark yeah. Company.
0: Um So I, and I was a trustee for a long time before that. And, and actually, yeah, yeah, sadly, yeah. one of the things we may miss um, is the Barbican was planning a big Michael Clark retrospective exhibition oh. in the gallery opening in June. Um, right. So mm. either it will open in the nick of time or it may be delayed. I'm not sure what's happening yeah. to it. I love that. But Mike I mean, Clark. I'm I I do like contemporary dance, but I'm not you know, like a balletta man or passionate and super knowledgeable about it. But right. when I first lived in London it was the eighties and Michael Clark used to perform at places like the Riverside, which was then an amazing um, cultural venue, and the ICA, and mm. it was the first time that contemporary dance really spoke. To me, because it was all about pop and style culture, which I was obsessed by, and so it was that sort of interaction that
2: really what's pop and style me culture. me about his
0: work and continued to.
2: What's pop and style culture?
0: Pop and style culture. Oh, that
2: oh, is was in <laughs> pop culture and style culture. Sorry, I thought yes. it was like a, pop and style culture was like a movement. Oh, okay, I've got it. Sorry. <laughs> you both <laughs> went quiet then, and they were like, too, sorry. Russell. <laughs> yes, yes, yes! Oh, I, absolutely! I get it. I thought that was like a, an umbrella for something. Got it. Oh, that's funny. Got it.
1: Like the arts and crafts uh, movement or something.
2: Yes, I thought it was a pop and style culture. What's that? Well, no, it's just pop actually we could have had you country, there, yes. Rob,
0: and I could have spun that.
1: Oh.
2: Yeah, we could have yes, done. done. Yes, yes. Wasted was. opportunity, you two. <laughs> you ganged up on me. <laughs> so, Alex, we have heard recently that you have been uh, well. You've just started on a project called the Design Emergency. Can you talk about that a bit?
0: Sure. It's a project I've started with one of my best friends, a bit like you two, really, (laughs) Hannah Antonelli, who's the senior design curator at MoMA. And we both felt that there'd been so much incredible design ingenuity in terms of the response to COVID 19 that we wanted to do something to really sort of market um, because we felt that the design response so far has been an amazing example of what design can do to tackle really complex. Social, political, ecological problems and help with a crisis like this. And so it's sort of essential that that's built on at the end of the pandemic or as it abates Mm. and we redesign and reconstruct our way of life. So Design Emergency is a platform that we've started. Um, We're planning to produce a book at the end of it. So it's a sort of research platform. um, But we're also beginning. It's actually on Instagram. Uh, so we began oh. with a series of IG Live. So our first speaker, we want to talk to the sort of leading design figures in the design yeah. response to COVID-19. So the first was Michael Murphy, who's one of the world's leading humanitarian designers. And his group, Mass Design Group, um, which is in Massachusetts, has done a lot of uh, healthcare work with governments in Rwanda, Liberia, other African countries that brought them in after Ebola to sort of redesign the national healthcare infrastructure in the hope that they would be fit for purpose in a pandemic like this. So we'll soon see how that works out. And uh, last week, we interviewed Alyssa Eckert, who's the medical illustrator who designed the spiky blob that we all now recognise as the yeah, cause yeah, yeah. of COVID-19. And so she works for the Centre for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. So she's a that, very... that
2: illustration though, can I just ask about that? Is that actually based on what the actual thing looks like? Or is it an imagined version of it?
0: It's a brilliant question because it's a bit of both. It's based on super magnified, super sophisticated um, scientific microscopic imagery of the the coronavirus, the cause of COVID-19. But the medical illustrators slightly reinterpret it to serve whichever sort of public health agenda they're told to focus on. So that was the first visualisation of the novel Coronavirus 2, as it's called. Mm -hmm. And at that time, you know, its scientific names unpronounceable scientists were baffled the world over by it. So sort of all we had was this image, which is now one of the most famous images in the world in about Mm, three months. It's quite incredible. And what Alyssa and her colleague Dan Higgins based it on was the accurate microscopic imagery, but also um, they sort of reinterpreted it to reflect the priorities of the CDC, the Centre for Disease Control at the time, which was really to sort of ring the alert and inform people as to how dangerous this pandemic could potentially be. Yeah,
2: because it, it looks an aggressive image. That, that isn't like a sweet cuddly virus, is it? That looks it's like not. it's spiky and going like, <laughs> to injure
1: you. Indeed.
0: Yeah. So what it's all in the Sports. spikes actually, Russell, because what yes. she did was there are three forms of protein in um, the coronavirus and the spikes, which are the sort of angry long ones, they're actually the least numerous proteins. They are called spike proteins. So the less sort of obvious brutal and vicious proteins actually make up the bulk of it. So she added many more spikes and exaggerated their size, in other right. words, to warners. And of course, that's what mm. people picked up on. And so, you know, people have made piñatas out of it so they can smash yes. it mm-hmm. to Actually, bits. one of the artists
1: that I, I work with, Catherine Bernhardt, she's been in Guatemala, and I think they did exactly that with a piñata for her son's yeah. birthday.
0: <laughs> the New York Times did a brilliant photo series on it. But I've noticed recently that people have been sort of reinterpreting that image in a much cutesier way it's Mm, as though we kind of you know cupcakes cuddly toys and so on it's kind of like we've bashed bits out of it and now we kind of want to think it that we can control it and cuddle it right who knows So she was fascinating. And this week it's Paula and me, because every so often we're going to do a double act again, a bit like you two, and talk (laughs) about the sort of general themes. So it'll be hacking this week because, you know, there have been all these massive corporate endeavours to try and design emergency ventilators from scratch and so on. Very few of them have worked. And it's actually been the hackers who've carried the day, you know, by working with prefabricated. Well, basically working on existing systems rather than reinventing them from scratch, which with something as mechanically sophisticated as medical equipment is very difficult and potentially dangerous to do. Why are they called hackers? They're called hackers because um, it's, uh, well, it's hackers and computer hackers are sort of, you know, out to rob, slaughter, kill and devastate the terrain. Hackers mm. in a design and making sense build on existing components of machinery. For instance, there's a, a group of um, five Afghan teenage girls in um, Herat in Afghanistan who are building an emergency ventilator from the components of a Toyota Corolla car. So they're hackers because oh. they've hacked the car. Oh my God!
2: Wow! Are there are there are there competitions like architectural competitions set up within the design world to find the apparatus that will be needed for all this?
0: Yes. Yeah, so the Afghan girls—they're part of a sort of skills project in Afghanistan called the Afghan Dreamers Project, which is to identify right. talented and. Um, gifted Afghan teenagers and sort of give them the additional support that they need to fulfil their potential. So they responded to a design competition for ventilators that the governor of Herat, where they live, issued. I mean, my favourite, because NASA's involved and they've now readopted the worm identity, is the NASA design challenge. And mm. NASA occasionally, for very special occasions, uh, like global pandemics, um, issues design challenges to all its employees they're allowed to stop their sort of normal work to focus on designing solutions for grave global emergencies and is this so is one good. of them so i'm really looking forward to seeing what comes out of that
2: mm-hmm. wow and one more question then one more question paola paola your friend who's yes. who's the uh, design leader of moma did you meet through design did you become like Bezos because of the design world
0: Yes. And so we also, we tend to speak at the same conferences or be on the same design juries. So during the course of a year, even though obviously she's in New York and I'm in London, we have endless opportunities to meet and currently to Zoom. And we always sort of involve one another in each other's projects, but we've always wanted to do something together from scratch. And Paula suggested mm. it, and it's been really fun.
1: Amazing. It's also really exciting, the kind of long-term um, you know, collaboration you two can have thinking about you know what to do next because it's it's really important to think about design solutions and creative ideas in the pandemic but also what happens when we go back to the you know the new world that is out there mm. you know now mm. that some countries are beginning to ease their lockdown etc
0: well exactly we've already seen I mean we've all seen the dramatic reduction in emissions, so you know clear skies, bird song and so yeah. on in London. And so already you've got lots of mayors. I think the mayor of Milan was the first, obviously London's mayor followed last week who are really using this to redesign the traffic management systems of their cities, ensure that people carry on walking and cycling, that emissions stay as low as possible. And you know in so many areas of life, we know that Um, our designed and architectural environment isn't fit for purpose. You know, it's ethically Mm. and environmentally responsible. It's not necessarily attuned with the technologies that are part of our daily life. So all those fields need redesigning. And this sort of scorched earth scenario as the pandemic Mm. abates is an amazing opportunity to seize, to make sure that the design of our lives is fit for purpose in the 21st Mm -hmm. century, And so, Paula and I both feel passionately that because design has been one of the few sort of good news stories of the pandemic, you know, everyone's excited by the amazing innovations or the fun DIY vernacular design projects that people do, like the park keepers in Birmingham, who last week decided they'd let the grass grow in the parks for the first two months of lockdown. And when they were back at work and mowing it again, they decided to mow two-metre-wide strips in Uh all the parks so Uh everyone knows how far apart...
2: They oh, wow. Walking so cool. I mean, That's really at, clever.
0: <laughs> the images of it are just fantastic. So, you know, there have been lots of sort of fun grassroots DIY design yeah. projects like that. Another of my favourites is when a, a class of primary school pupils went back to school for the first time after lockdown in China. Um, one of the teachers had made them safe-distancing hats um, with sort of wands that protrude out from the sides. So the hats are really fun. They're all painted different bright colours with glitter and spangly bits and goggles in one case. And then they've got these horizontal wands which sort of tell the kids how close they can get to other kids without breaching social distance. Because otherwise, so how clever. do you tell a bunch of six year olds yes. to do that?
1: They've
2: got to be careful with their oh, eyes though. All yeah. I'm picturing is like, eyes, like throngs when <laughs> an umbrella going into all these poor little kids' eyes. But yeah, it could
0: take <laughs> but, yeah. take an ear off. Couldn't <laughs> <Yeah. it>?
2: <laughs> <laughs> the last thing they need oh. poor things. Oh, bless them. Particularly a small oh.
0: child could be a serious problem.
1: Exactly. <laughs> I do love all that that thinking, though the way that design design can be really like functional, useful, but also kind of fun and joyous at the same time. You know, same as art Mm. in a way. Yes, exactly.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, one another favourite is um, in Chennai in India. The police mm-hmm. officers there have sort of adopted the spiky blob, the coronavirus symbol, in all sorts of ways. So you've probably seen the images of one swaggers around with a massive um, spiky blob on his helmet. <laughs> um, and another painted them, had a white horse, this was a mounted police officer, and so, you know, I don't know, canters or gallops or trots or whatever around on a white horse, which has got red, bloody red spiky blobs all painted all over it. I mean, they're just and both of them say they've done this so they can raise awareness of the threat. It gives them more authority when they're telling people to go back home and stay there. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's just fantastic instinctive ingenuity. Mm hmm. Amazing. So we felt that you know all of this activity presents such a compelling demonstration of design's power as both a powerful and really constructive tool to tackle complex problems and so the more aware people are of it the better and the likelier it will be that design will be taken seriously as a tool to redesign and rebuild our lives after the end of lockdown, rather than simply being relegated to the role of a styling and PR tool all over again.
1: Wonderful. Well, if you would like to see this, everybody, you can visit the Instagram, which is at design.emergency and um, very good you actually have beautiful um typeface as well i loved it we do well that's the brilliant
0: frith kerr
1: of studio yeah studio frith yeah yeah Yeah. and i mean she did
0: it so i mean she's a friend of paula's and mine and uh, has been absolutely brilliant and did it so quickly and we just love it Mm. so it's sort of so elegant but it's urgent without resorting to emergency cliches so great
1: there we go well i'm really thrilled that we've learned more about that
2: well, thank you so yeah, much for coming on, Alice. This has been thank absolutely you, Alice. brilliant. It's been wonderful. Oh, it's yes. lovely to love talk to you both. Yes. Been wonderful. And so for everything we've been both talking soon about today. I hope. Yes. Definitely. For everything we've been talking about today, please go on Instagram at TalkUp. Alice, you also have your own Instagram, right? That I do. Alice.Rawsthorne. Okay. How do you spell Ross-Thorne?
0: <laughs> with difficulty r-a-w-s-t-h-o-r-n you have to pretend you've been cast in coronation street russell ralston It only make sense alice ralston
2: got it yeah, right, not right, bad. Right. Yeah. follow alice on instagram <laughs> got it. you Here sound go. like
1: some you sound a bit like alan bennett or somebody who was that who was Thank that you. Once you were channeling you were channeling someone the like i yeah, Al- say Al- i say alan, i say Ashley, i say i say i say okay, yeah. wrong one. Okay, well,
2: anyway. Oh, Rob. <laughs> no, oh. you're northerners.
1: <laughs> um, well, look, thank you so much. It's been great to um, spend some time with you and hopefully see you very soon and we'll have big hugs.
0: <laughs> yeah, hopefully not just from a safe distance. So otherwise no. yeah. it'll be from two metres. Okay, lots of love to you both. Bye-bye. Big
1: love, thank Thanks. you. Bye.
2: Bye.
1: You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamant and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at TalkArt, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in this episode. Subscribe to TalkArt at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey folks, I'm Mark Maron from the WTF
2: Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues